actually that it's very true that I became a monk to forget <laughs> but I don't know what I've forgotten <laughs> but it's true it's great being I always say that it's much better to be a monk when you've actually gone through a little bit of life so at least you know what you're talking about and also you know what you're giving up and that way that uh, when you have to give a talk on on love on Valentine's Day at least you've got some idea of what you're talking about and it's also important because you know, part of my job is actually to looking after all of you disciples all you people I spend so much time counseling people on marriage problems <laughs> and oh it gives me big headache I know it's really unfair because I became a monk to get out of all of that <laughs> and now people come and tell me their problems so you can't escape so instead of trying to escape you've got to confront these problems and do it right so just even this evening not only uh, giving a blessing for people just starting out in marriage but also talking to people in the middle of marriage and some couples at the end of marriage <laughs> but you get all types but it's nice to get it together right at the very beginning not everybody can become monks and nuns in fact my monastery is full up now so you want to make sure please don't you know, get divorced stay together we can't handle too many more monks and nuns <laughs> so, so because of that we want to try and encourage people to learn how to live together and understand you know, what love truly is and the first story about love especially about relationships and marriage in a Buddhist context now many of you who have done some Buddhist studies before know this there was two originally two main forms of Buddhism and sometimes they call it Hinayana and Mahayana Buddhism and Hinayana Buddhism is supposed to be the selfish Buddhism when you're just concerned about your own enlightenment and Mahayana Buddhism is supposed to be self-sacrificing so you're not really concerned about yourself out of compassion you just serve all other beings selflessly now that's actually this wrong that's not what Buddhism really is but I've used that to describe people in a marriage because I found in a marriage one person is Hinayana the other one is Mahayana <laughs> doesn't matter whether they're Christians Hindus or whatever one person is selfish in it for themselves and the other no generally speaking the other person is self-sacrificing and it's usually the case not always but usually the case the man is the Hinayana and the woman is the Mahayana <laughs> not always though which means that one partner is in it for themselves what we can get out of the relationship and marriage and the other one just gives themselves for the marriage both are wrong both are wrong that's not the right way to have a marriage and you may know that because if you're a Hinayana what you're getting out of this relationship your needs your sexual needs emotional needs and everything else needs financial needs that's not what a marriage is all about just trying to suck up as much as you possibly can for your own needs 
People like that don't last very long in a marriage. But also the other type is also wrong. If you sacrifice yourself for your partner or for your family, your marriage, and many of you have done that, after a while you get burnt out, you've just got nothing left to give. That's wrong too. So the Buddha never taught Hinayana or Mahayana. He always taught the middle way. Which means, and I just told this to a couple just about an hour ago. I said they're just about to get married soon. And I said from now on, you should never think of yourself. I looked to the man, you should never think of yourself. And he nodded. <laughs> at least he thinks like that at the beginning, I don't know about later on. <laughs> and I looked at the girl, you should never think of yourself. And she nodded. And then looking at her, I said, you should never think of him either. <laughs> and that's where she got confused. <laughs> and I looked at him, you should never think of her. Because in a marriage, if you think of yourself, that's Hinayana, that's being selfish. If you think of the other person, that's being Mahayana, that's sacrificing yourself. And you're part of this marriage. I say, from now on, you should never think of yourself, you should never think of your partner, from now on you should think of us. Not me, not him, not her, but us. You're in this together. And the thing with a relationship, the love of uh, boy and girl, or even boy and boy, girl and girl, I don't know these days, but whatever it is, <laughs> it's always us is the most important thing. And it's amazing just to have that amount of understanding about what a relationship is solves heaps of problems from the very beginning. Which means if there's any problem, it's not his problem. It's not your problem. Whose problem is it? Our problem, yes. And when it's our problem, we can always find a solution. But when we say it's his problem, or it's her problem, or it's my problem, we're missing the point. So this is what the Buddha meant by middle way. Where does a relationship live? In the space between you and your partner. Now that's a great place to look when you're having any relationship. Even a relationship with your children, or even with your friend, or your boss, or whatever. It's not in him or her, or in me, it's what goes on between us. That is where the action is. That's the middle way. And it's amazing. When you're looking in the right place, then you can find the solutions. When you're looking in the wrong place, it all goes wrong. But when you look in the middle, how are you talking to each other? It's amazing. If you want to find out why relationships go wrong, just put a, like a, an iPod or some recorder or something and just record the conversation in 24 hours and then play it back to yourself. It's obviously why it's going wrong. Just the way you speak to each other. That's why uh, I found out this, this quote came from Ogden Nash, the British playwright. It's actually, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's a quote in the, the calendar. It was one of the quotes I submitted for the calendar. Secret of a happy marriage. If you're wrong, admit it. Say you're wrong. If you're right, shut up. <laughs> 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 I 
It's terrible when the other partner's always right. So if they're right, shut up, okay? If you're wrong, say, yeah, I admit it. That's a bit of selflessness for you. But the way we speak to each other, if you really listen, is terrible. Okay, when we're in love, we speak very nice things to each other. Oh, you're so wonderful, darling. Oh, but you're so charming. And you're so beautiful. Oh, you're so hunky. But, you know, when it's a couple of years later, you said, you know, you're getting fat. But, you know, you should brush your teeth. <laughs> Be careful the way you speak because remember the words you say. That's like the the bricks and the mortar of your relationship. A relationship is not just you fall in love and that's going to be it forever and ever and ever. That's why one of the other beautiful similes is that when a people fall in love, we call that paper fire. We've got this huge flame and it's very, very big, but it's very insubstantial when you first fall in love. It feels big and it feels wonderful but it's paper fire. And if you don't add the twigs, the wood and the other strong fuel, you find the paper fire goes out very quickly. So when you have like a relationship, you find someone you really like, you have paper fire, please make sure you put some more fuel on, some twigs, some bigger pieces of wood, some logs to really get the fire substantial. And what do I mean by those twigs and those big logs? The twigs are the shared experiences you have together. In other words, you do things together. Now, I'm not quite sure what happens in Singapore, but I think you're living in a very wonderful country where there's lots of freedoms. But this is a story from Australia. Many, many years ago, maybe 24 years ago, a couple came, they'd just been recently married. One was a Christian, the other one was a Buddhist. So they, they loved each other, they got married. And so they asked, what should we do from here on in? And the monk who was with me at that time gave this beautiful advice. He said, on Sunday, he was a Catholic, on Sunday he has to go to church. So talk to the Buddhist, the Thai Buddhist, you go with him to church. On Saturday, she comes to Buddhist temple. Talk to him, you go with your wife to Buddhist temple. That was beautiful advice because what's really important that the Buddhist would understand her husband and also be able to do things with him. And the husband would understand his wife and go and do things with her. But what's really important is that they do things together because that's what the relationship was. And they've been happily married for the last 24, 25 years. They still keep coming to the Buddhist temple. I don't know if they still go to Mass, but they certainly keep coming to the Buddhist temple. Together! And why not? Now that's the sort of thing which is important you know, if you are uh, in a relationship together. Because when you do things together, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever. Come together. If it's a good place, you can always learn something. And even if you're bored as a Buddhist, if you go to church and you're bored, you can always meditate. <laughs> There's always something you can do. So what, what we mean here is that by doing things together, you're actually putting on these bigger pieces of wood. 
These are like the kindling which makes a fire grow stronger. But the real big logs of wood, that's when you have problems and difficulties together. Because life isn't easy. Living together, the closer you are, the more friction there is, and so the more heat there is. And sometimes that heat's going to get very hot. And that's when you have the arguments and difficulties and problems together. But if you're really committed together and say, right, we're really going to do this together, you can always find solutions to anything. That's what I've found anyway. You know why you can find solutions to things? Because human beings are generally really good people. You wouldn't have been reborn into this realm if you didn't have many, many wonderful good qualities. So basically, the person you've got for your partner in life, they are wonderful. Sometimes I, when I do marriage counseling, I just, it's amazing. You get this guy, he's a wonderful guy, known him for a long time, great kids, a good person, but his wife can't stand him. <laughs> Other people can. And this wonderful woman, she's really sort of kind and gentle and good. And other people love her, but he doesn't. Why is it that sometimes that when we get upset and angry, we just we can't see the goodness in our partner? And so it's quite easy, for me anyway, to teach people when they are having problems in their marriage, to actually find the solution for that. Remember why you fell in love with that person, why you chose them. Start to look at the things you respect in them. The problem is when we get to a certain stage of a marriage or relationship, we just see the faults in our partner and that obsesses us. If you don't know what I mean, you can pick up this copy of this book, the very first story, The Two Bad Bricks in the Wall. One of the famous stories in that book, if you don't know this story, I'll tell it in brief. Building my monastery over in Australia 25 years ago, no money, had to work hard. I slaved hard. I'm not a lazy monk. I did it tough. That's why these days, I tell the monks these days, oh, in the good old days, we used to have it really tough. And then they go, oh, not again. <laughs> well, we did do it tough and had to learn how to build myself. I had to lay concrete, bricks, put a roof on, everything, plumbing the works. I was there digging in the, in the trenches. I called it life in the gutter. <laughs> and I worked really hard. But when we were laying bricks, bricks aren't easy to lay. You go and see some of these people out there you know, laying bricks. It looks so easy. You try it yourself. When I tried it, those bricks were never level. You had to knock one corner down and another corner would go up. You knock that corner down, it would go out of line. You knock him back in line again. The first corner was up again. Oh, it took such a long time to lay the bricks. But I wasn't being paid. So I could take as much time as I liked. And like many people, you are perfectionists. So I tried to make every brick perfect before I went on to the next one. When I finished that wall, I stood back to admire it, and that's, oh no. I couldn't believe it. Two bricks were at a terrible angle. They spoiled the whole wall to the point that I asked the monk staying with me, can we get some dynamite to blow it up and start again? 
because I couldn't get the bricks out, but I couldn't afford any dynamite. That wall had to stay. For three months, for three months, every time I saw that wall, I saw those two bad bricks. I even dreamed of those bad bricks, <laughs> nightmares. You know what it's like, oh, what did I do that for? And when any visitors came, and I took them, I made sure I volunteered to be the tour guide so I could take them somewhere else so they would never see my mistakes. I was so upset with those mistakes until one day someone came with me and they said, I couldn't believe it, they were looking at the wall and said, it's a beautiful wall. What do you mean it's a beautiful wall? Are, are you blind? Have you left your glasses in the car? I told them. Can't you see those two bad bricks? And what they said was, yes, I can see the two bad bricks, but I can also see the 998 good bricks as well. And it was the first time, first time in three months, I could see anything other than the two mistakes. Every time I looked at that wall, my eyes would go to two bricks, and I could not see anything else. Every time I thought of it, I thought of my two mistakes. When I dreamt of it, I dreamt of my two mistakes, and I could not see anything else. That is why I wanted to destroy that wall. Now do you get the message? When you look at your partner, you're just seeing the two bad bricks in them. Can't you think what's above, below, to the left and right of that person? The beautiful bricks in them, their wonderful qualities, what in Buddhism we call their Buddha nature. It's there, but just because of marriage and because of negativity, You've got into this rut, you just see the faults in the person you once loved and fell in love with. Why do we do that? All you need is someone to say, that person who you can't stand, who you're seeing a divorce lawyer right now, when someone says they're a beautiful person. Yeah, they've got those faults, but they've got, for every two bad faults, they've got 998 wonderful good qualities. Now you can understand how you can have relationships being successful. You're not in denial to their badness or their stupidity. You're understanding that's only part of them. And we're not going to focus on just that negative part. We're going to focus on something else. We're going to deliberately look at our partner and try and find something beautiful in them. Strange thing, the psychology of the mind, once you get into negativity, that's all you can see, the faults in them. And you look at that person, you're getting divorced with, they're terrible, they're awful, they're selfish, they're whatever. You can never see anything good in them when you are angry. That is being stupid. That is not being wise. That's being, oh, you're just distorting your perceptions. So what we really need to get the marriage together again is deliberately look at that person and maybe see what the children see in them, see what other people see in them, see their beautiful qualities. And when you get through the problems of the difficulties of a relationship and you get through that, it's like putting the big logs on your fire. And that, once the big logs are on the fire, that fire's going to last for a long, long time. They're going to keep both of you warm even in your old age.
And it's wonderful to see these people who have gone through the problems of life. Now they have got into this situation, they've been negative towards each other, but they remember two bad bricks in the wall, and they deliberately look for something beautiful in the other person. And you can do this. Now this is a true story, an amazing story, from Australia. And this lady, she's a heroine. She's a saint. Not many women can do this. Because she's imagine about 15 years ago now, when she came to see me to say thank you. And you know, many people actually come listen to the talks. You know, I don't know exactly how these talks are affecting people. But every now and again, someone comes year after year, and finally they come up and tell me what they've been through and how these talks of this Dharma has helped. And she said, I really want to thank you and the other monks who have given these talks because you have saved my life and my marriage. And of course, I'm always really interested when people say this to find out exactly why, to get some feedback. And she told me that seven years previously she'd first come to my temple in Perth because she wasn't a Buddhist. She was not interested in meditation. The only reason she came was to escape from a violent husband. An hour in the temple was an hour when her husband wasn't hitting her. It was domestic abuse, as happens in many countries. Now this is really bad. He was hitting her. Now, many people say the best thing to do is just to get out of the house and seek some counselling or some your relations or friends. But at that time, there wasn't much support for women who were experiencing domestic abuse. But more than that, she still loved that man, and you probably understand why. I mean, if you don't, but never been in a marriage before, you don't understand how can you love a monster like that. She loved him, and she was confused. She couldn't make a rational decision in such emotional turmoil. But she made a very good decision somehow to get to the temple. And what she learned was basically that similar to the two bad bricks in the wall, what we call these days in psychology, positive forgiveness. Now it's not just forgiveness, because sometimes that people tell me this, if I keep forgiving him and forgiving him, and for he'll just keep on going on that way. If I keep forgiving her, she'll just carry on like that. And it's very true, forgiveness by itself is not good enough. You need the other important ingredient, what we call positive forgiveness. And this is what she heard. Every time he hits you. Now this is, I'm not recommending this, only if you're really sane and tough. <laughs> every time he hits you, let it go. But every time he's kind to you, give him some positive feedback. Give him a hug, give him a kiss. Whatever it is, to tell him that this is the behavior which you appreciate and value and respect. That was a very simple thing which she heard. Every time he abuses you, let it go. Every time he's kind and caring to you, give him positive reinforcement. And she told me it took her seven long years. But when I looked at her, she was radiant, she was beautiful, she was happy. 
Seven years it took her to change that man. And she did change him from being a monster to being a loving husband and father to their children. And of course they had a relationship which you know, was a huge fire. They came to our monastery and I saw them just together. How she'd actually changed that man and at the same time grown in her wisdom, kindness, compassion. She was a saint. She was way up there in her spirituality. Maybe you not, may not be able to do that much, but I don't think many of you have a husband who's such a monster or a wife who's such a monster. You know, monsters of both genders. <laughs> but if that could work for her, why can't we do that ourselves with our partner? Okay, now you may have some problems and troubles, but you can always do something with that. And positive reinforcement is how it's done. I read this uh, article in a newspaper about a woman psychologist who did her um, paper, her thesis, on a water park where she wanted to find out how people train dolphins to jump through hoops. I'm sure they've got water parks here in Singapore. And maybe you've seen that. How do you get a wild animal, a dolphin, to jump through a hoop? And it's basically the same, positive reinforcement. Every time, but it's incremental. This is the extra piece here, incremental. In other words, every time that dolphin uh, jumps a tiny bit out of the water, you give it a fish. A little bit more, another fish. If it doesn't do it, you don't punish it, you leave it alone. But every time it jumps a bit higher, another fish. And that teaches the dolphin through reward, not punishment. Punishment is not forgiveness. The reward is positive reinforcement. And soon that dolphin is actually jumping right through the hoops. Now when this woman in Australia saw this, she had a great insight which was the main part of her thesis why she got this degree. Her great insight was to try that same technique on her husband. <laughs> she wrote the paper, How to Train a Husband. Every time he does it wrong, shh, don't do anything. When he does it right, throw him a fish. <laughs> I don't mean whacking with a fish. I mean give him some positive reinforcement. And this happens with the wives as well. It happens in any relationship you have with your boss, with your workers, with your children, with your parents. Forget the negative part of it because that negative part of it, that creates the divorces, the separations. The, you've been through that. You've seen what happens with negativity. Once one person gets into it, the other person gets into it. You give as good as you get and it's a terrible relationship the way people speak to each other. We don't need to do that. Some positive reinforcement is much better. So you just speak nicely and kindly to your partner. You can get much more out of them. You can squeeze much more from, with kindness than you can ever squeeze with anger. And if you do things like that, you can actually work through these relationships together and get this relationship back on track and have a happy time and actually grow in your relationships. So on this Valentine's Day, you can actually learn how 
to do better with your partner. And it's also, if you haven't got a Valentine, Angie's told me, the people coming here today are usually <laughs> those in trouble. That's usually what happens. The people usually come to temples and monasteries, the ones having suffering. If they don't have suffering, they go somewhere else. It's like a hospital, they're all sick. So if you haven't got a partner yet and you're looking for one, so you can, it's easy to find partners in life. It just, look, when I remember just when I was uh, young and going out with boys and uh, going out with girls. So <laughs> I went out with the boys to find the girls. So we went out with your mates and go down to the pubs or the clubs or the dances. And I always remember you'd see this nice girl over there and you'd go and chat her up. But I'd always get nervous because I was really concerned what she thought about me. But after a while I realized something very, very important. And this was something which I, I, I think I wrote it in my book. That when you're in your 20s, you're very, very concerned what other people think of you. You've got to be fashionable, got to have nice hair, nice clothes, nice dresses, whatever. And you've got to know how to be attractive. Because when you're in your 20s, you're really concerned what other people think of you. But usually, even in Singapore, especially in the West, when you're in your 40s, you get what we call self-confidence. Which means you, know, you don't care what other people think of you, you just go and do it anyway. But when you're in your 60s, you finally find out that people weren't thinking about you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they were thinking about themselves. And that's a big insight I had. When I went up to see a nice beautiful girl, I was thinking, what's she thinking about me? What's she thinking about me? And she was thinking, what's he thinking about me? What's he thinking about me? If only I'd have figured that out earlier, I'd have much more fun. I did figure that out, so I just had fun and relaxed and enjoyed myself because you know that if you are grumpy or nervous you get nowhere in life. So if you want to find a, a good partner, the best uh, makeup you can ever have is a nice smile. Happy, because people like fun people. They want to have fun with you. So if you're trying to find a partner, you haven't got one, just learn how to laugh and have a joke and be more happy about life. You know, which is why it's a good introduction to tell all my relationship jokes now. <laughs> Love is blind. So what's marriage? An institution for the blind. <laughs> As one person said, I never knew what happiness was until I got married and then it was too late. <laughs> when I was going out with my fiance, we used to hold our, her, I used to hold her hand out of love. Now we've been married for f 10 years, I still hold her hand out of self-defense. <laughs> Well, that's just jokes. Why are you laughing? I'll tell you why I'm laughing, because it's true. 
why do we have to get to that point in marriages? Can't we have a bit more fun and learn how to do this properly? Because usually what happens with a relationship like that, you no, know, it starts with a sexual relationship, the romance, but hopefully it goes into the beautiful, deeper sort of love. And it's those deeper loves which I, th I found very interesting. One of the points I made, I think, at the Buddhist Fellowship talk some time ago, that when you choose your partner, you put a lot of effort into going out with them, finding out if you are compatible. As, uh, I'm, I remember in the, um, the concert, the Passage of Time concert, they used this joke. I know where it came from. It came from me. <laughs> you go for a test drive before you commit these days, like choosing a car. But you put so much effort into choosing your partner, but you can't love them unconditionally. Compare that with how you regard your children, if you have children in a marriage. Your children come into your life and you don't choose them at all. You don't know what comes in you know, from a past life. And even great parents, beautiful parents, have some very difficult children. And some very bad parents have wonderful children. So the children which come into your life, you don't choose them. It's not like you go to a shop and choose which one you're going to get. But your children, you will love them unconditionally. Why can't we have that same sort of love to our partner? Why not? You, you didn't choose your children, but you'll always love them. You chose your partner. Why can't you love them as deeply, as unreservedly? Why? I think because we have different expectations. The expectations we have from our partner are very, very hard to fulfill. And we want our partner to be perfect sometimes. That's why they say that when a people get married, the woman wants to change her, her man. You know, we want to sort of tweak him this way and that way to make him just right. And you really think you can do that. Actually, if you come here and learn some psychology, you can do that. A lot of women just are unable to because they don't come to Buddhist fellowship enough. <laughs> and the, women, the man wants his woman to stay the same. She doesn't want his wife to get old and ugly and fat and too much <laughs> But people do change. And the thing is with the way you love your children, you can actually watch them change and love them at all times of their growing up because you have hardly any expectations from them at all. They're your children and that's enough. And that's why that I wrote in Open the Door of Your Heart to take the love which you have got together with your partner and take it to that next level which I call the family level. To love your partner as you would love your children. To say to them, this is a story from the book, partner, the door of my heart's open to you. You're the one I've committed to in this life. My door of my heart is open to you, no matter what you ever do, no matter where you go. Now that takes a great leap of love. It's a very, very beautiful leap to take. It takes you on from a, a carnal love 
which is you know wanting to get something out of the relationship to a beautiful spiritual love now you're the person who's my partner in life you're walking together sometimes you have to go off by yourself sometimes I go off by myself but my love goes with you the door of my heart is open to you no matter what you ever do no matter where you go now that's an inspiring love and the reason why it's an inspiring love because it's a liberating love too often that first type of love is too much expectations and demands it's a control freak love and people do that out of fear they think if they don't control their partner that it's all going to go wrong if they don't try and make him do this or make her do that the relationship's not going to work but that type of controlling that is what breaks the relationships and those of you who are in a controlling relationship you know how that feels you feel you've got no freedom that you are not trusted trust is important in a, any relationship even if a person doesn't live up to that trust you should still keep giving it until they learn to live up to that trust how other can, how, what other way can we have any relationship real love also includes trusting the other you value them you can even trust them to make mistakes as you love your kids they will make mistakes that's how they learn that's how they grow so if you can trust your partner that way and they trust you then the level of love goes to that next level not controlling but liberating and freeing the same as like your parents have that love to you the way you'll have your that love to your children it's a trusting freeing love and this is what we really mean by that type of love we call metta in Buddhism it's a love which doesn't demand anything which is given absolutely freely not expecting anything back in return it's not a love say I will love you as long as you worship me or believe in me that's not love again that's the business deal again the Buddha when he gave his metta he even gave his metta to people who tried to kill him an amazing story when assassins came to try and kill the Buddha and he caught them what do you think he did? he didn't call the police and get them arrested he just said look as long as you acknowledge what you've done forgive it and learn from it just don't do it again okay you can go now that's it it's a beautiful freeing love people realize they've made a mistake how many times have you made a mistake and how many times have you been punished for it and what does that teach you that, well, that's what I learned at school if I made a mistake and got sent to the teacher or the principal the only thing I learned there was don't get caught next time I never realized what was being wrong or what was I never really learned from that so but when you have that, that love you actually you learn you know what the mistakes are and how to actually to grow from these things so that's actually why there's no punishment in Buddhism 
So when we, I just, yeah, okay. This story comes up. Again, I can't remember what I told this story last. There's no punishment in a monastery either. But one day, there was this um, postulant, we call them anagarika. When they first come to become a monk in a monastery, for one year they have to wear white, keep eight precepts. This is the first year of training before they can become a monk. So one of these Australian trainees at my monastery, he came to see me one day to confess his crime. He'd got into the kitchen at my monastery in the afternoon and made himself a sandwich because <laughs> he was hungry. Now we're not supposed to eat in the afternoon from midday until the following day when you're staying in a monastery, keeping eight precepts, no meals. And he snuck in and stole a sandwich. <laughs> but he was so guilty, he came to confess to me. And so just open the door of my heart to you. Okay, just don't do it again. You can go now. Now I practice that. The door of my heart's open to you no matter what you do, even if you steal a sandwich. Okay, you confess, just don't do it again. And eat more at lunchtime so you don't feel so hungry in the afternoon. <laughs> But this man would not accept that because he was trained in Australia. He said, look, that's not good enough. I need a penance. I need a punishment. Otherwise, I'll do it again. <laughs> so I'd just been reading a book about early Australian history. <laughs> you know what they used to do with those Australian convicts 200 years ago? They used to whip them you know, with the, you know, these cat of nine tails. I don't even know what they used to do in those days. It was really cruel. But I thought, okay, this is Australia. You want a punishment? I said, I'll give you 50 strokes of the cat. And this young man, his face went whiter than the clothes he was wearing. Because he didn't really know me. He thought, oh my goodness, Ajahn Brahm's going to whip me. He's going to whip me. And of course, I wouldn't do that. So I told him, look, in Buddhism, 50 strokes of the cat means this. In our monastery, we have a cat. Go and find the cat and stroke it 50 <laughs> times. <laughs> and learn some love and compassion, you hard-hearted young man. <laughs> so that's the punishment we have in Australia now. 50 strokes of the cat means find a cat and just stroke it there until it purrs. Because that was his problem. He, he hated himself. He wanted punishment. Which gives him the next important part of love, of metta. Why do people seek for punishment? Because they cannot love themselves. It's hard enough to go to the person you live with and say to them, the door of my heart's open to you no matter what you ever do and give them unconditional love and take that beautiful fire of your relationship love to that next level but it's also important it's vital for every one of you one day in your life at least in the privacy of your inner world to look at yourself and say that to yourself. Whoever I am, whatever I've done, the door of my heart is open to me. To allow yourself in 
unconditionally. It's amazing just how many people have got a part of themselves kept out in the cold. Part of themselves they, they don't like. No wonder we don't feel whole and at ease with life. We've all got parts of ourselves which we wish we hadn't have done. Things we didn't say, which we should have said. But there's no need for punishment. Instead, we think, the whole of me, the stuff I like and respect, but also the stupid things which I've done, even the hurtful things I've done, even those as well, are part of me. I allow that part into my heart as well. And it's a wonderful feeling. That's why I called it like opening the door. It's as if there's something that's been kept outside. You open the door and it all comes in. You accept yourself unconditionally, as you are with all your history. You become at peace with yourself in the same way that you may love your child no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. You have the same love for yourself. Now that's not thinking you're such a great person and being proud and arrogant. That's a love which frees you, which brings you peace, which brings you calm. You're opening the door of your heart to yourself. You're finding a good relationship with the one which you have to stay with for all your life. Sure, you can get rid of husbands and wives, divorce them, separate from them. You can even move away from your parents or your children. But the one person you can't move away from is you. Unfortunately, we haven't figured out how to divorce yourself from yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you're stuck with you. So if you're stuck with you, how about open the door of your heart to yourself and giving yourself a Valentine's Day present. This was one of the meditations which I developed and I've taught. If you can't do meditation easily, this is one thing you, which you find easy to do. Sitting down, closing your eyes, just relaxing the body and imagining a box. An empty, say, shoe box which is lying around your house. Take that box this is in your imagination and put a gift in there say put a gift of love put it in the box doesn't matter how you imagine love a big red heart or whatever put it in the box and close the box and imagine you discover some old wrapping paper some gift paper and carefully in your mind in your imagination wrap up that box of love. And find a nice ribbon in your imagination. Tie the ribbon around with a beautiful bow and a little card on which you write in your imagination to me with love from me. <laughs> <laughs> and push it aside and imagine you forgetting it. 
And then in the next part of this imaginary exercise, imagine you find it. Oh, it's a present. I wonder who this is for. And imagine you see the little gift card. Oh, I wonder who this is for and open it. Oh, it's to me. Isn't that nice with love for me? And imagine yourself opening it slowly. And when you untie the ribbon and unwrap the wrapping paper and open the lid, you find this beautiful gift. A gift of a heart or a rose. A gift of love from yourself to yourself. What a wonderful Valentine's gift that is. Because it might be your right to express your love to your partner or to your hoped for partner. But the most important thing of all is to express that love to yourself. And that gives huge benefits both physical, emotional and mental and spiritual for you. A little bit of kindness to yourself takes away all of that negativity which causes the cancers and the heart problems and don't know how many other diseases. Just because of negativity. You're being kind to yourself. You're loving yourself and giving yourself a gift of love. Emotionally, when you know how to love yourself, you're a happy person. As I said, when you're a happy person, you become incredibly attractive to other people. So which is why I say this Buddhist fellowship, it's not just a spiritual place. This is Ajahn Brahm's beauty parlor. <laughs> because <laughs> the happier you are, the more attractive you are. This is better than Botox. <laughs> it is. When you are happy, at peace with yourself, you're incredibly attractive because don't you like to be with happy, peaceful people? Emotionally, but mostly spiritually, when you can be at peace with yourself and love yourself as you are, it is inner peace. If any of you want to find out where this Buddhism leads to, why are you doing this? What's the end? This Nibbana business. This inner peace. And don't you understand that when you accept yourself as who you are, when you really love yourself in this very deep way, you're at peace with yourself. That's most of the way to Nibbana. And it's not that hard to do. It just takes some guts and some inspiration. And then you become like a Buddha, kind, compassionate to all beings. So that little bit of love towards yourself is important. But that type of love gives the other aspects of love, which I wanted to bring up in this talk, it's a love which liberates. Some time ago, I was, we got a couple of German monks in my monastery, I was checking out the German language. You know what the German word for love is? Lieber. And I thought, wow, Lieber. That means liberality, giving, and also liberation, freedom. And in this German language, the, the three words come together, giving, loving, freeing. 
And that gave me a beautiful understanding, a deeper understanding of what this whole thing is all about. Because at Valentine's Day, what do you do at Valentine's Day? You give a gift to your loved one. That's how we express love. By sacrificing, by giving. Because that's part of love. And it's wonderful, if you've got your kids, those of you who are mothers and your kids come home for Chinese New Year, what do you love to do? Feed them. Eat, uh, eat kids as much as you can. You get so much happiness out of giving things to your children. Same as me giving things to my monks or to the cats in the monastery. Cat comes along, okay, you can have this. I get much more fun of giving it to somebody else and eating it myself. Because it's an act of love. But also freeing. Which is also a giving. The most wonderful thing you can do as an act of love to the person you love the most is to free them. To say, partner, I free you to be yourself. To know that my love is unconditional. You don't have to work so hard to keep my love. It's yours forever. I free you to be yourself. Imagine that someone said that to you. I love you for who you are. You don't have to be different. It frees you. Same, that's what you say to yourself. I love me for who I am. With all my stupid jokes, which I tell. <laughs> it frees you. You don't have to try so hard to be different. Can you do that to yourself? To free yourself? Now how about loving life? To free life to be just what life is. You work, look after your kids, see them grow up, let them go and find partners themselves. Getting old, when you get old you retire and eventually you die. Free yourself to just flow with this wonderful passage of time life of ours. And the most important thing you can do, especially to your loved ones, is when they are about to die, please love them so much that you can free them. Some of the most wonderful times as a monk is teaching people at the time of death to free each other. I remember Jenny and Steve. Steve, young fit man, he had a white water rafting business to take people all over the world with these adventure holidays, white water rafting down these beautiful rivers and rapids. Incredibly fit man. In his 30s he got cancer. He died maybe 37, 38. He was a Buddhist. So I was with him at the end and counselling him. But I remember going to his apartment in Perth. They never had kids. They were you know, too busy enjoying their life. You know, kids were going to come later, but it was too late to have them. And seeing Jenny looking after her husband, Steve, who was dying of cancer. They only had a few days left to go. But there was something wrong could see there was emotional tension between the two of them. But I picked it up because I'm a sensitive monk. And I told Jenny, have you, gi have you given Steve 
permission to die yet? Have you freed him? She understood immediately because I got it spot on. She never looked at me. She jumped on the bed. And one of those wonderful times which I'll always remember. She hugged him, looked into his weak eyes, said, Steve, I love you so much that I give you permission to leave. Go with my blessing. He died, I think, a day later. It was a beautiful moment. He was having difficulty dying because he didn't want to hurt the person he loved and who loved him. All he needed was to understand the person he loved and who loved him would free him. That's what love means. To liberate the person when it's about their time to go. What a wonderful time we've had together. I love you so much. I set you free. So when it's your parents, when it's your brothers and sisters, even if it's your children, it's a time for them to go. Understand what love really is and free them. To go according to their calm wherever they wish to go. To say to them before they die, the door of my heart is fully open. Go with my blessing. Unconditional love is what frees people. And that way these most painful things parts of ordinary people's lives for people to understand become these incredibly moving beautiful experiences experiences which inspire you and show you just how wonderful this life can be in all of its aspects when we understand what meta what love truly is it frees it liberates it inspires and it creates beauty in the most unexpected of places. That's why it is one of the highest qualities. So on this Valentine's Day, may you give love to all beings to liberate them and free them. But most importantly, to say happy Valentine's Day to yourself. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Arjun Brahm. And perhaps uh, we can open the floor to questions if you have any. But maybe I'll just start with the first question. Arjun Brahm, if uh, you're in a relationship and the love is gone, perhaps one still wants the relationship and the other one doesn't, what would your advice be? Okay, that's a relationship and you think the love is gone. The love isn't gone, it's just hidden somewhere. You just got to go find it. Go on a treasure hunt. It is a treasure. The point is that you know, if you had a relationship and you loved that person before, then there must be something inside of them which actually connected you. Look for that again. If you really wanted to, you could. But based, somebody asked me this question a couple of days ago because I was talking about you know, my life in Australia and Sometimes the people ask you tough questions. So someone asked me, what was the toughest question you ever got as a monk? And there was a question in, from an Australian schoolgirl. She was very naughty and cheeky. 
after giving a talk on Buddhism, and I said, any questions? He put her hand up and said, what's your question, madam? And this 14-year-old said, you're a Buddhist monk, do girls still turn you on? <laughs> <laughs> and so when I gave this talk to some executives, they asked me, well, do girls still turn you on then? And actually I said quite honestly that these days when I see a girl or a boy, I see that that's just on the outside of you. Now a girl, old or young, whether you're Singaporean or Caucasian or African, I don't know what it is in the training as a monk, you see deeper into people. But I don't see a girl or a boy these days. I don't see old or young. I just see this beautiful person. And that way I can love people. But not just one, many, many, many people. So no, don't get lust of people, you have love towards people. And I can love you. I can love everyone in this room very easily. And I trained myself even to love these criminals when I went into jails. And these are people who have done some really mean things. If you can love a rapist, a murderer, serial murderer, then certainly you can love your husband. Your wife. So actually, that if you really know how to do it, you can love anybody in this world. But if love is freeing and that person doesn't want you anymore, isn't isn't it therefore a good thing to free the person oh, yeah. and you can continue to love the person rather than clinging on? Yeah, your job is just to love them. In other words, to free them and to wish them well and to see their good qualities and then to see what they do. But a lot of times when somebody receives that type of love, and you know, the really this high quality love, I'm really sort of aiming high here. Maybe you may not be able to do this yet, but who cares? I'm going to inspire you to see that's the level you should aspire towards. If you can actually do that to another person, it's amazing how they respond. When I did that to say the prisoners I went to visit in the jails in Australia, and I loved them for who they were, they love me back. I always remember this time when one of these prisoners, he was one of the leaders in the jail, one of these tough guys, you know, leader of the gang. And there had been a lot of rapes against men. Because prisoners, they'd go for anybody. They'd jump them. And we were given these security pens. When I went into the jail, the prison officers took me aside and said, look, we've had too many assaults against the volunteers. So here's a security pen. It's like an ordinary ballpoint pen, but it's not a pen inside, it's just an alarm. They have like sensors like the smoke detectors, but they're not smoke detectors. If you get assaulted, attacked, put the pen, press it and aim it at the detector and we'll know that there's a problem, we know exactly where you are, we'll come and rescue you. And they said, but don't tell the prisoners what this pen is about. So I took the pen in, and the first thing this guy said, oh, you've got one of those security pens as well. <laughs> <laughs> of course they knew what was going on. But then he looked at me, he was a big guy, maybe six foot four or five, really big guy. And he looked at me seriously and said, Brahm, he used to call me, do you think you could even press that top there before I jumped you and raped you? <laughs> and he was serious. And I looked at him and I said, probably not. He said, certainly not. But he said, you don't have to worry in this jail because we love you. If any of those guys tried it, I'll get them first. 
That was my security. I didn't need the pen because I'd been kind and accepted these people for who they were and saw their beautiful side. They loved me. So they were protecting me and caring for me. And I learned maybe if you can love sort of some of these guys, you know, the 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 worst offenders in society, why can't you love other people? So it's easy to love you people. You know, you're not rapists or serial murderers. So you're trying the tough bit people. Try and love some of those tough people. And then other people it's easy to love. Usually the uh, type of love that Hollywood teaches you is about you love someone and then you want them, you own them. But I think you're talking about a different kind of love that if you love someone, you actually free them. Yeah, this, you love them, you free them. But why is it we want to want them and own them? It's out of fear. It's the fear is the cause of controlling. Because we think that if we don't sort of control our partner, then they'll go off with somebody else. If I don't follow them around, you know, who knows what they're doing when they go to work. And sometimes because we're afraid, that's why we have a lot of control. That's why you're afraid of yourself, which is why you try and control them and, and force yourself to do too much. So I always think that fear comes first, control comes next. And control is part of ownership. So the way to overcome that fear is to have a bit of trust, inspiration and wisdom. To know there's nothing to fear except fear itself. People who try and control their partner, the partner hates being controlled. You feel like you're in a prison. And of course the thing doesn't last. The thing which you fear the most comes about. So if you can have, give a bit more freedom with your relationship, trust the other person. Even trust your kids more. Then they'll usually live up to your trust. A lot of times that I've talked with parents and say, please trust your kids more. Allow them to go out. Sure, there are drugs out there. There's bad people out there. There's all sorts of trouble they can get into. But you'll find if you control them, you'll find they're probably more likely to get into trouble. But if you trust them, say, look, mum and dad love you very much. We trust you. Off you go. Most children, would they love their parents so much, they don't want to hurt them. And if you give them trust, most times they live up to that trust. Not always, but most times. Same with your partner. Ajahn Brahm, what if your partner is found to be untrustworthy? So do you still love them and want them, or it's better to set them free? They're found to be untrustworthy. Going back to the two bad bricks in the wall, when I was in Malaysia, I'm going to Malaysia day after tomorrow, I was giving a talk in, I think, I forget which university it was. At the end of the talk, when it came question time, this lady stood up and said, I found that my husband lied to me. I cannot trust him anymore should I get divorced. That was a question she asked, straight up. So I said, I want more information. How long have you been married? She said, three years. So what are you doing anyway in this university? She was a professor of mathematics. So I saw my opportunity. So you're a professor of mathematics. Let's do some statistics together. <laughs> You've been married three years. We'll call that 1,000 days. 
maybe let's assume for statistics that on average over the three years you've been married he's said 20 things to you every day on average which could be right, which could be wrong. So since you've been married he said 20,000 statements which could be right, could be wrong. Now he's lied for the first time. According to probability theory <laughs> the next time he opens his mouth there's a 20,000 to 1 chance he's telling the truth. What do you mean he can't be trusted? 20,000 to 1 is pretty trustworthy, isn't it? What you really meant with that question? He's broken the trust one, two, three or four, five times. How often has he kept the trust? There's no such thing as an untrustworthy person. All people are worthy of giving trust to. What we really mean to say, they've broken that trust several times. But please keep in perspective, sometimes we only see the two bad bricks in the wall. The times they've broken the trust. What about the times they've kept the trust? Keep it in perspective and then you find there's not one person in this world who's not trustworthy. What's the alternative? When people trust you, sometimes you do make mistakes, you feel terrible about it. But they don't give the trust to you again. When will you ever learn to live up to trust and become a human being? So give trust. Human beings are worthy of it. Sometimes they make mistakes. That's where we learn and grow. But don't not give your trust to others. I jump around got a question. Um, what happens if you love someone deeply but you realize that you're not compatible you know, after trials, after trials and give positive forgiveness and then uh, you get hurt and you realize you're not compatible at the end but the other lady was like, I mean the other person was trying very hard to win back the relationship. Yeah. Okay, you're talking about compatibility. What do you mean about compatibility? I've seen people and I thought, gee, how can those two get together at all and love one another? But they do, they do wonderfully well. Compatibility, as long as you know, you've got two arms, they've got two arms, you can hug each other. <laughs> I don't I think you can make compatibility happen if you work hard enough at it. So I don't know that sometimes, look, as, as monks, like you know, you get all types of people become monks. And if you want to become a monk and you want to keep the rules, you become monks. And so, you know, you, you have this group of men in a monastery and sometimes have personality clashes. But they have to stick together, they're there in the monastery day after day, year after year. It's amazing, they learn how to become compatible. And it's, well, it's just amazing actually to see that. And I've seen that for so many years. People who, there's no way they could actually go and have dinner together because they just, just do not get on together. But day after day, year after year, they have lunch in the monastery together because they have to. They learn how to get on together and they do. That's one of the wonderful inspiring things about monastic life to see people forced together, live together, and they become compatible together and become some of the best friends. So really, if you really want to, 
You can. If you really want to, but it's tough. But why not do the tough one? <laughs> yes. Is love is an attachment, and if we practice non-attachment, is there any love? Oh yeah, that's only love is an attachment. Only that that lower type of love is an attachment. You know, the paper fire. This is what I've taken love to have different things. If it's a love is an attachment to the other person, it's really not loving them. It's loving how they make you feel. It's loving yourself. You know, in a in a in a low way. So real love is freeing the other person. And if you really love them and free them, not an attachment but a liberation, they stay with you much longer. Though similarly, if you have a bird and you put it in a cage, and you keep it in the cage for many, many years, sooner or later, just by accident, you're going to leave the cage door open. That bird's going to fly away and never come back. But if you have a cage, and you keep the door open, but you make it a very wonderful, warm, lovely cage, a nice home. The bird might fly off, but it'll come back again, because it likes your home. So that's what we really mean by love. Have love with, no ca with the cage door open, but make it such a beautiful home and house that people might fly off, but they always want to come back again. And that's what we really mean by love. It frees the other person to fly off, it's such a wonderful place to stay close to you that they hardly ever want to go anyway because they like it there. So that's a different attachment is when you keep the cage door closed. The love which is free, yeah, cage door is open, but it's a beautiful cage, so people like to stay. That makes sense? Okay, the love which is controlling, which wants the other person to be around, which wants to try and change them, which tries to hold on to them at all costs. It's like the usual way that people have love, say, in the movies. That's the wrong type of love. The love which is meta, which liberates, which frees, which says to the other person, the door of my heart is open no matter what you ever do, no matter where you go. I love you, I care for you, and I can see the beautiful parts of you. I can see the faults in you as well, the two bad bricks with the beautiful bricks. The end of that story, which I never mentioned, was I gave that talk to some cancer patients, because it's a great story for cancer patients. I say, you've got a tumour in your breast. What do you mean you've got cancer? Most of your body hasn't got cancer. 98% of your body is free. It's only 2% has got the tumour. So what are you so worried about? Why don't focus about the healthy cells? But when people say they've got cancer, they go, ah, they're all cancer. That's not true. It's only two bad bricks in your body. Now that's a very deep, different way of looking at things. But when I told that to the cancer uh, group, a builder came up afterwards. And he said, Ajahn Brahm, all professional bricklayers make mistakes. They all do. But he said, I'll let you into a secret. In the building industry, whenever we make a mistake like that, we tell our clients that it is a feature. 
and we charge them an extra few thousand dollars for that. So all features in your house or apartment, they started off as mistakes. There's a beautiful way of ending the story because the two bad bricks becomes what makes you, it's your feature. So when a person does have any faults in them, we love them, that's the feature which makes them lovable. I love that little extra. So you can love a person, their faults make them even more lovable. If you really understand what love is. And all your faults, if you're all perfect, it would be so hard to have compassion for you. <laughs> but because you're naughty sometimes and get up to all sorts of mischief and do the wrong things, that's why we can have great compassion. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn Brahm.